I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We will be reading starting in verse 16. So Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. And hear now the word of the Lord. Now when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this... He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. You join me in prayer. Father, would you now warm our hearts to your word? Would you warm our hearts and our affections for you, for your glory? You would stir our affections for Christ. Father, I pray that you would show yourself magnificent in this text that Paul preaches to the Athenians. May we see and believe And understand, and may we repent. Father, help us this morning. Give us uh, grace for hearing your word. So we ask, Lord, for your favor 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's good to see you this morning. Good morning, church. I'm glad to be here. Some of you have often wondered aloud uh, to me in all of my preaching whether I know that there is a New Testament. And so here we are in the New Testament this morning in Acts chapter 17, and I'm happy to be in the New Testament. It is July 2nd, and our nation has formally concluded its celebration of sin in Pride Month. And although the calendar has changed from June to July, our culture has not. Much of what has been on display has been an active rebellion of the creature against the Creator. It's a rebellion against what God has described as good and given as good. Male and female created in the image of God. Marriage created by God. It's a rampant display of idolatry, a worship of the human body, a worship of pleasure, a worship of human autonomy, meaning I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, and I can be whatever I want. A person can be anything they desire. And as I reflect on this past month, and the parades and the marches and the in-your-face marketing, there are two things that strike me about my own response. The first is that I'm not nearly provoked enough about what is being displayed. I'm not nearly bothered enough by misplaced worship all around. But second, and I'm aware more often than not, that my heart does not break for the lost. These are image bearers. These are image bearers of God who do not worship God as God. And I find myself at a loss sometimes to know what to do. I have nothing in common with so many people from outside these walls. And the question is this, how do we persuade people without the Bible, people who don't care about the Bible, people who don't care about church, ignorant of the one true God? How do we get an audience? How do we meet them where they are? Are we even supposed to meet them where they are? Do we adjust our message? How do we engage this secular mindset that is so prevalent in our culture today? And do you believe that the message of the gospel is sufficient? Do you believe that the Word of God is powerful enough to save anyone, anywhere, at any time? Or does the gospel somehow need to be propped up, somehow need to be supported with human reason, or maybe we need to borrow from our secular culture to find some common ground with unbelievers before that we can share the full gospel? And the danger is this, that we're tempted to find some other way to connect, some other way to connect with people outside the church, people who don't have the Bible. And then perhaps we can find an inroad, and then we can bring the gospel. The gospel just won't make sense to someone outside the church. We don't have the Bible in common with them. We don't have the church in common with them, and so we try to find some other hook 
And we will meet groups of people in the text this morning that do not have the Bible. They did not read the Bible. They did not go to church. But according to Paul, they were very religious. They were idolaters and philosophers, pleasure seekers and pantheists. Their beliefs were a mix of atheism and materialism. They were pagans, and they were made in the image of God, every last one of them. Men and women made in the image of Almighty God, and for Paul, the gospel of God was powerful to save as he says in Romans 1.16, what Pastor Brent read, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for anyone who believes. And I pray that we see that this morning as we get into the text and we find people without the Bible, we find people without the church, and Paul takes the Bible to them and preaches the Word. And so this is the theme this morning. God has made Himself known. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and all people everywhere must repent. That's the message. I'm preaching a sermon on a sermon, right? This is Paul's sermon to the Athenians. God has made himself known. Christ is risen from the dead. All people everywhere must repent. So that's where we're headed. We're going to look at the setting quickly of Athens and then get into the content of Paul's sermon. So the setting, Acts chapter 17. As we come to Acts chapter 17, we know Paul is on his second missionary journey. It's probably 50, 51 AD. Paul has been traveling with Silas and Timothy through the cities of Derbe, Lystra, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. And Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy to arrive in Athens. They have been ushered out of the city of Berea because of persecution. And this is what Acts chapter 17, verse 15 says. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. They left Paul by himself in Athens waiting for Silas and Timothy. What do you know about the city of Athens? The great Greek city of antiquity. It was known for its intellectual, its cultural tradition. It was known for its schools of education. The city was famous for its philosophical fathers. You are familiar with them. Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno. Athens was famous for its gods. One of their ancient historians said this, quote, Athens has more idols than all the remainder of Greece combined. They were known for their gods. In Athens, we're introduced to people and places. We're introduced to the synagogue. We're introduced to the marketplace, the Areopagus. We hear of various people groups, the Jews, the devout, those Gentiles who would be following after God who were not Jews. We hear of Epicureans and Stoics, of foreigners and whoever else happened to be there. Acts 17 helps to fulfill the great key verse of the whole book of Acts. That's all the way back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It is, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Judea and Jerusalem, and in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so as we come to Acts 17, Paul is getting to the ends of the earth. They have already been in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and now they are in Athens. And so that is the setting. 
So let's look at the text. How is our theme developed? God has made himself known. Christ is risen from the dead. And all people everywhere must repent. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, the spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy, and his spirit is provoked. He's been walking around the city of Athens. He's been examining their objects of worship. Every street that he walks down, every street corner that he comes upon, he comes upon an idol. Petronius, an ancient writer, said this, It's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. Can you picture this? The statues and the idols. You you can see this in your mind of the Greek gods and the Greek goddesses. You can see the temples, the shrines, the altars. This stirred Paul. He was exasperated. That's the idea of the word. He was provoked. He was bothered. This rampant idolatry that was all around him provoked something within him. It's almost as if Psalm 119.53 was coming out. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. It bothered Paul. This ought not be. There's only one true God. Note Paul's response. So he sees all this, verse 17. So he reasons in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout, and then he goes to the marketplace. He goes to two places, the synagogue and the marketplace. His intent was to evangelize. He wanted to engage their thinking. He went first to the Jew, to their synagogue, so that the Jews might hear the gospel, and those who were there would be the devout, those non-Jews, who would also be seeking after God. But he also went to the marketplace, you see this, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there, casting the net far and wide and frequently, every day, for whoever happened to be there. Picture the marketplace, this bustling scene of the colonnades, and you can see the tarps and the tents, the market stalls here in Athens, people buying and selling It's where business owners would come to hire people. Children would be playing in the streets. You would have animals walking about, a marketplace for commerce and trade. And yet it was also a marketplace for the exchange of ideas. This is what he meets here in verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. They had overheard his message in the marketplace, and so they engage with him. They talk with him. While he's preaching, and we have to understand who are the Stoics, who are the Epicureans. The Stoics, these are two schools of philosophy. The Stoics believed in the divine, but it was a mixture of this strange pantheism that somehow the human soul was connected to nature, and there's this odd sort of materialism and fatalism that's going on. It was this weird mix But they denied any sort of the resurrection. They didn't believe that the body could be resurrected. They denied that. The Epicureans, on the other hand, they were agnostic. They didn't really care whether there was God. They didn't put too much thought into that. They pursued pleasure as their chief end. They weren't total hedonists, but they desired the tranquil life. 
They desired to avoid pain and to gratify the appetites. Does that sound familiar? And so what was their reaction to Paul's preaching in the middle of verse 18? Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said that he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And what was their reaction? They thought he was showing off this word babbler. It actually means seed picker, like a bird who pecks along and picks up seed along the ground. It's a term of derision. The idea that a person comes and picks up tidbits of information, scraps of knowledge here and there, and then passes it off as knowledge, like I know something. And they're saying, Paul, you're just a show-off. You just picked up some bits of information here and there, and you're showing off. You're a babbler. And others said, well, wait a minute. He seems to be preaching something. They, they recognized he was preaching. The word there is where we get our word for evangelism. He is preaching the good news. He's proclaiming. And they recognized this. And what was he proclaiming? Jesus and the resurrection. That's his message, Jesus and the resurrection. Now, of course, this is a summary statement by Luke. Um, he wasn't just saying those four words to everybody. He was preaching the gospel. And we know from other parts of Scripture what that message would have been. If I could summarize from 1 Corinthians 15, at a bare minimum, we know Paul would have been saying this. The gospel that I preach to you is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He's preaching the gospel, and they recognize He's proclaiming something. He's proclaiming something about God, preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And this message was strange to them. You see that? This is a strange teaching. Verse 19, they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know therefore what these things mean. So they take him to this place called the Areopagus. It's called Mars Hill, the hill of Mars, Ares, the god of war. Hundreds of years earlier before Paul came to Athens, the council of the Areopagus would have met on this hill. It truly was a hill. And it was almost in the center of the city. There was a larger hill called the Acropolis where the temple complex was to the gods. And then next to it was this Mars Hill. And this is where the council would meet. And the council was essentially the governing authority of the city, made up of wealthy aristocrats, officials. When Paul gets there in the first century, it's not quite as influential, but it still has influence over the workings of Athens. They had oversight over the city, civic and religious life. From education to crime to approving lectures to regulating religion. So it's not likely that he was arrested and brought on trial, but they're saying, come, tell us more. You're preaching some strange gods here, and we need to know more about what you are saying. So you might envision an energetic impassioned discourse that took place as Paul is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And Luke closes this opening scene with a bit of irony, verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. The very thing that they're accusing Paul of, being a seed picker, being an idle babbler, 
is the very thing that they're doing. They would just sit around, lounge about in the marketplace and in these colonnades, and they think of, they would theologize, right? They would theologue about certain things and philosophy, and then they'd pass it off as something that they knew, the irony of the scene. So that sets the stage now for Paul's sermon, starting in verse, seven, uh, starting in verse 22. Paul begins his sermon So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, they have brought him, and he's standing in the midst of the Areopagus, and he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and I observed the object of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. And what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul begins with observation. The Athenians were a religious people, and this word can be positive or negative, very religious, this word, this phrase. It can mean overly superstitious or fearful of the gods in a negative way. In a positive way, it can mean devout or sincere, serious about the things of the divine. And so he's probably not outright calling them superstitious. He's reasoning with them. He's probably saying something like this. I can see that you have this sense of the divine. You know that there's something more. I mean, look around. All of the statues, all of the idols, the temples. These are proof that you have a sense of the divine. In every respect, you are very religious. You are devout. Verse verse 23 would confirm this. You have the language that Paul is using. Objects of worship. You see that? Objects of worship. Altar. Worship. I mean, this is the language of idolatry. It's a language of worship. It's the language of devotion. Sophocles, one of their dramatists, said this about Athens. They say that Athens is most pious to the gods. Very religious indeed. In fact, they are so religious, so devout, so intent on worship that they built an altar to an unknown God. This altar is an admission by the Athenians. By constructing this altar, they are literally saying, we don't know what we don't know. Perhaps there's a God who's worthy of worship out there. We are ignorant. And so Paul is going to key in on their admitted ignorance What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He's going to key in on their ignorance. I'm going to make you, I'm going to make known to you what you admit you are ignorant of. And we have to be careful here. Paul is not saying, careful here, he's not saying that the idol that you have fashioned is one and the same as the one true God. He's not saying that. He's not equating their unknown God to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not conceding any ground here in his argument that really the God that you worship is the God that I worship. Not at all. There are actually clues in the text that would help us see this. First is the Greek that he uses. You can't see this in the English, but it's a neuter language that he's using here in verse 23. What is? You, therefore, worship this, I proclaim to you. Those are neuter words. He's not using the masculine form that we would see as using toward the one true God. Second, later in the sermon, as we read at the beginning, he calls all men everywhere to repent. 
Now, if their misguided and their ignorant worship of this unknown God is somehow equal with worshiping the one true God, what's there to repent of? And finally, clearly, there is an altar there right there. There's an altar. It's a graven image. It's a physical representation of the divine. And we know from Exodus 20 that God does not accept the worship of graven images. This is not the same God. Paul is making it clear, your God is not my God. There is no equivocation. Rather, my God has made himself known and I will proclaim him to you. How has he made himself known? Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. First of all, God makes himself known as creator. Verse 24, he has created the world and everything in it. Notice what Paul does. He begins with creation. He goes to a people without the Bible and he begins with creation. These are people who don't have the scriptures. And Paul goes in reference to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created everything, the heavens and the earth. He is Lord over everything that exists. Moreover, this God, the God, the one true God who made everything, is Lord over everything. He is unlimited. He's not limited by time, by space, by place. He does not live in temples. This God does not need the Athenian service. He doesn't need anything. Quite the opposite. Idols are made by human hands. Temples are made by human hands. Altars are made by human hands. This God is not served by human hands. Not only is he the creator and the Lord and ruler over all things, he is the giver of life. Look at the end of verse 25. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. Paul is saying, your very Breath depends on this one true God. You owe your entire existence to this one true God. You you cannot take another breath without him. And note the totality that Paul speaks of. All mankind, life and breath and everything. That's this one true God. Paul continues to draw from Genesis Thinking of when God created mankind, when God created Adam, Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the irony is that they have fashioned gods in their image. Paul is saying, you Athenians, you have made your gods in your image, in the likeness of man, in your vain imaginations. You have chiseled gods to look like you out of stone. And the reality is God made you in his image. He has given you life. If you look and you listen carefully to what Paul is preaching about, this one true God, you can start to hear his divine attributes, that he's transcendent, that he's independent, that he is self-existent, that he is without boundary, that he is limitless. 
He's the ruler and the creator of all things. And by implication, by implication, his authority extends over all the Athenians. In creation, God's invisible attributes are on display. How else has he made his, himself known? He's made himself known as creator, as ruler over all, as life giver, life sustainer. Pick it up in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. He's the creator. He's a life giver. He rules over the affairs of mankind, verse 26. The one true God has made himself known by creating all of humanity from one common ancestor, Adam. Paul continues to go back to what God has revealed in the books of Moses. You vainly and ignorantly build dwelling places for God. You domesticate your gods and you put them in shrines and temples and in cupboards. But it's the one true God who has given you your dwelling place. He's determined where you live. And the fact that you Athenians live in Athens right now, and not in Sparta, and not in Rome, and not in Jerusalem, is proof of his existence. The God who wields time and history has sovereignly placed you where you live, in your allotted place, in your allotted time. He rules over the affairs of mankind. Again, the books of Moses, Paul is thinking Deuteronomy 30, 32. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, and when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the sons of God. The one true God rules over the nations, over the affairs of mankind. This is similar to what has happened earlier in the city of Lystra. He was confronted by the people there in Lystra who wanted to worship Paul and his companions as gods. And listen to what he says in Acts chapter 14. Men, why are you doing this? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is within them, in past generations, he has allowed the nations to go their own way. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He has not left himself without a witness. He has made himself known. He is there and he is not silent. Now, why did God do this? Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. The kind providences of God, the fact that you have air in your lungs, that you have a heartbeat in your hearts, that the rain came last night that your heart is beating, you live in this place and not another. These facts are witnesses to God. He is Lord over all, and these facts should drive a person to seek God. 
And you see the, the language here, perhaps. It's, 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 in, it's not for certain, but they should feel their way. The, the idea is to grope, to, to kind of grope in the darkness and the blindness and try to feel their way. That's a person that has their eyes blinded. They have not seen the glory and the beauty of Christ. They're groping in the darkness. But all of these things are pushing them that there is a God, that God exists. And he's not that far from us, verse 27b or 28. He is actually not far from each of us because in him we live and move and have our being. He's close enough to touch, not in a pantheistic sort of way as though God inhabits everything. But in his hand is life. This is Job chapter 12. Job recognizes this. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. We are indeed his offspring, even as some of your poets have said. Verse 28, we are indeed his offspring. Here Paul quotes from one of their pagan poets from the 4th century B.C. His name was Aratus. This was actually part of a hymn to Zeus. And we have to be careful again here. People will say, see, Paul is using common culture, he's using common areas, and he's comparing God to Zeus, and we should be able to find common ground with people who don't have the Bible. And that's not exactly what Paul is doing. Yes, he's quoting from one of their pagan poets, but he's doing so in support of what he has already proclaimed. The Athenians, their notion of deity, their notion of the divine that even your poets prove that you have an innate sense that God exists. You know it to be true. And your poets prove it. It's because they've been made in the image of God. And they're his offspring. That's what we get the word. That's what Paul's using. (laughs) They're talking about being the offspring of Zeus. Paul is taking that. He's saying, no, you're made in the image of God. You're the offspring of God in that sense, that we've been made in the image of God. And this fact, verse 29, being then God's offspring, being made in God's image, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. If people are created by God in his image, this is Paul's argument. It follows that God cannot be something less than human, like these idols that are all around He cannot be something less than human. Rather, he is more than human. He is more personal, more living, more conscious. And so he's repeating from verse 25, saying, you Athenians, you don't fashion God in your image. He has made you in his image. And therefore, idolatry is ignorance, yes, but it's also wickedness. And that's the sermon, right? He ends. I mean, he, he now brings the demands. That's the content of his sermon. But now he brings the demands. God has made himself known. It's all over. And what are the consequences of this fact? Given all that Paul has preached, what must necessarily be true? What are the demands that have been put on the hearers at the Areopagus? And the demand is simply this, repent because judgment is coming. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now 
He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God is no longer going to overlook your ignorance, Athenians. The day of judgment is coming. Indeed, it is already on the calendar. He has appointed a day. It's fixed. And he says, all men everywhere must repent. And you've got to be thinking, what are the Athenians thinking of this? Repent of what? What what am I to repent of? My ignorance? You've got to be kidding, right? Is it wrong to be ignorant? I was at a a family get-together a week ago, and um, one of my little nephews is is very precocious, very bright young child, and and one of uh, the sons-in-law of my family, he looked at this little guy and he said, I think he's going to probably figure out the theory of quantum physics. Quantum physics. And since then, two, two of my brothers-in-law just start talking about quantum physics. And, I, and I'm thinking, I can't even hang with these guys. I don't even know what quantum physics is. I'm ignorant. I'm clueless. I don't, I don't know what quantum physics, string theory and all these kind of things. You can't fault me for not knowing, can you? If a person gets their math sums wrong, is that something to repent of? They're ignorant. They don't know math. And the Athenians are like, well, you've got to be kidding. Repent of my ignorance. With regard to math, that might be true. But with regard to the one true God, it's patently false. Ignorance of the one true God is no longer an option. In fact, it's culpable ignorance. It's blameworthy ignorance because God has made himself known. Why is repentance the proper response to Paul's message? It's this, that the Athenians do not worship God as God. The truth of God is clear. The evidence for God is clear. God has made himself known as creator, as Lord over all things, as life giver, as ruler of the nations, as ruler of the affairs of mankind, as the one who gives the rain, as the one who gives you food, as the one who made you in his image. And the Athenians do not lack information or knowledge about God. Their professed ignorance is willful ignorance. Their ignorance is not neutral. It's not benign. It says Pastor Brent read in Romans chapter 1. They suppress the truth of what they already know to be true. Evidence for God is everywhere, and the Athenians stand condemned under the wrath of God because they suppress the truth of God. And he says this, you actually know the one true God exists, yet you fashion idols and you worship them instead. You are without excuse. And further, because you suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness, there's coming a day when the world will be judged in righteousness. God has fixed a day, verse 31. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. He has fixed a day and he has appointed a man. God has appointed a man to judge the world and this man has been raised from the dead. 
the resurrection. Paul closes his sermon with where he began, the resurrection. Remember, that's why he's standing on the, with the, uh, at the Oropagus. We want to hear you more. You're pre- preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. He, he starts there. He ends there, the resurrection. The resurrection is why Paul is standing there. It's where he ends his sermon, and it's the key to the whole message. And how is that true? The resurrection. The resurrection frames Paul's entire message as Christian theism. Christian theism. Follow this. It's Jesus Christ who is raised from the dead. Paul is not merely speaking of a generic theism, of a generic God, that there is some supreme God out there, and somehow my God is better than your God. It's not that. It's not a generic theism. It's Christian theism. The one true God, the God that Paul has been proclaiming is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And moreover, this God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the resurrection proclaims Jesus Christ as Lord over all. You see what Paul is doing. The resurrection of Jesus is God's assurance that judgment is coming. The resurrection of Jesus is God's proof to all people that Jesus is qualified to be the judge of the world. We've heard this in the Gospel of John. Logan's been preaching. Ephesians 1. When God raised Christ from the dead, resurrection. When God raised Christ from the dead, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Jesus Christ is Lord over all. It's Jesus Christ with whom all men must deal. And that's where Paul ends, the resurrection. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. The Epicureans, the Stoics, they didn't have any space in their belief system for the resurrection. They may have thought of some sort of temporary immortality, but never a resurrection, a bodily resurrection from the dead. We know from 1 Corinthians that the resurrection was foolishness to the Greeks. Yet others kept an open mind. Some said, we will hear you again. And we don't know what happened with these. If Paul had another chance, it doesn't, it's not recorded. We will hear you again about this. There were people that perhaps wanted to hear more. But look at verse 34. But some men joined him and believed. They believed. And one was from the council itself, Dionysius. And there was another named Damaris, and there are others that remained unnamed. And isn't that how it works? As the gospel is preached, as the gospel is proclaimed, as Jesus in the resurrection is proclaimed to a lost and dying world, some will mock, and some will want to hear more, and some will believe. Some will believe. And so I want to end and just draw some conclusions. It's really a sermon of a sermon. Paul's sermon is the sermon this morning. 
Some practical observations. First, people are inescapably religious. You've probably heard that it's said that people are made to worship, and in some ways that's Paul's argument in in this message, that because the Athenians are all created in the image of God, because they are all uh, created by God, it means they have been wired to worship. It's not a question of if people will worship. It's a question of what or whom. And we've seen that all around us in our culture today, that people will worship. Everyone is religious. Everyone worships. Everyone, everyone is an image bearer of God. And therefore, everyone is morally accountable to God. There's no neutral ground. It follows then that there are no true atheists or agnostics, biblically speaking. The Athenians' claim is, well, we're not sure. Maybe maybe there is a God out there. We just don't know. We're ignorant. And Paul says, oh, no, no. You do know. You do know. By virtue of the created order, by virtue of all that God has revealed about himself in this world, you know that God exists. But your ignorance and your denial of God is proof that you suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You cannot escape. People are inescapably religious. They know that God exists. Third observation, practical observation, is that Paul preached the Bible to people without the Bible. The Word of God, the Gospel of God, is powerful to save. And so the exhortation is, as you engage with and converse with the unreached and the lost, don't attempt to blur the distinctions between Christ and the world. The distinctions are there for a reason. Don't soften the distinctions. As Peter has exhorted us, 1 Peter 3, honor Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason the hope, for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. Just give them the word, Jesus and the resurrection, Christ crucified on your behalf. And so, personal appeal. The same message that Paul preached to the Athenians is the same message that is preached to you today. God has made himself known. God has made himself known. With the coming of Jesus Christ, the times of ignorance are over, and now every one of us in this room, every one of us in this room is commanded to repent. You and I and everyone everywhere are accountable to God. Judgment is coming. The day is fixed. The man Jesus Christ has been appointed. And so, believer, to you this morning, 
I just encourage you and exhort you to keep looking to Christ. Look once again. Believe the good news. Believe afresh in the resurrection of Jesus Christ for you and for your salvation. The resurrection of, God, of Jesus is God's proof that he is worthy to be the judge of the whole world. The resurrection of Jesus is also God's proof that he forgives sins. So look once again to the righteousness of Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection for you. That he was raised having made full atonement for your sins. Look once again to Christ. Flee to Christ as your only refuge. And to the unbeliever in this room this morning, neutrality to God is no longer an option. Professed ignorance of God is no longer an option. You know that God exists. You do. He created the world. He gave you life. He made you in his image. And he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Christ has come. True God in true flesh. God is offering you this day, today. He is offering you salvation. Flee to Christ as your only refuge. Come to Christ. Today, you can turn from your idolatry. Turn and look to Christ. Repent and believe and be saved. And may we all in this room, every one of us in this room, may we follow the example of the Thessalonians. In Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, he receives a report back about the Thessalonians, and this is how he describes them. And may this be true of us, and we'll close here. You Thessalonians, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you, the Thessalonians, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ, to Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you that you are so clear. You have not left yourself without a witness. You have shown yourself in all of creation, shown yourself mighty in the works of God, creating us in your image, And most importantly, you have shown yourself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I pray for those this morning who do not know him, that they would repent. They would know their accountability. They would know that they 
can no longer profess ignorance. Would you work, O Father, by your Spirit to change hearts, to open eyes, to save? Thank you for this word this morning. Pray that it would be an encouragement to your people and you would bless us as we go. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.